This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, The Progressive, The Jimmy Dore Show, Counterspin, and Comedian Lee Camp. And a note for any My Country Right or Wrong listeners, be prepared for a heavy dose of the wrong. On the night of August 31st, 2010, which was a Tuesday night, uh, statistically speaking, if you were planning to watch TV that night, you were probably planning to watch a show called NCIS at 8 p.m. that night. If you were not planning on watching NCIS that night, uh, the thing you were next most likely to be planning to watch that night, according to the ratings, uh, was a show called Wipeout. Those shows on CBS and ABC were scheduled for 8 p.m. that Tuesday night on August 31st, 2010. But those shows did not air as planned that night at 8 p.m. Because at 8 p.m. that night, this is what was on TV on all of the networks at the same time. An address to the nation by President Obama announcing the end of something that for a very long time had felt like it was never going to end. Good evening. Tonight, I'd like to talk to you about the end of our combat mission in Iraq. The, ongoing the time difference between face. Washington, D.C. and Baghdad is eight hours. So when President Obama started speaking in the United States at 8 p.m. on that night, August 31st, it was after midnight in Baghdad. It was already September 1st in Baghdad. And so what is recorded as the end of the U.S. combat mission in Iraq gets listed in the history books as September 2010. It was not the end of everything in Iraq for the United States when we went through that transition, but it was really when what started in 2003 finally started to end. The page was turned. Operation Iraqi Freedom is over, and the Iraqi people now have lead responsibility for the security of their country. When President Obama spoke that night, there were still 50,000 U.S. troops in Iraq. And 50,000 Americans stayed in Iraq after that night for another 14 months until everyone finally left the following December, December 2011. But when the mission changed from a combat mission to the train, advise, assist mission, then it wasn't Operation Iraqi Freedom anymore. It wasn't that same war. It was the way that war came to an end. And that's why it was worth interrupting Wipeout and NCIS that night and all the other 8 p.m. programming. And that's why it was worth, at least for me, I thought it was worth flying out to Baghdad to be there for that historic ending uh, as the combat mission ended. That was what happened on August 31st and September 1st, 2010. And today, that's what the president said is going to happen this spring in Afghanistan, that same transition. In a surprise announcement, the president today announced a newly sped up timetable for how the war is going to wind down in Afghanistan. Today we agreed that as Afghan forces take the lead and as President Karzai announces the final phase of the transition, coalition forces will move to a support role this spring. Our troops will continue to fight alongside Afghans when needed, but let me say it as plainly as I can. Starting this spring, our troops will have a different mission. Training, advising, assisting Afghan forces. It will be a historic moment. It will be a historic moment. 
Coalition forces will move to a support role this spring. Now, now, like we saw in Iraq, this does not mean that everybody is going to come home immediately this spring. Remember, 50,000 Americans stayed on in Iraq after the announcement in September 2010. And it wasn't like the danger level for those Americans dropped to zero. Just being there was still dangerous. And we did still have some Americans killed and some Americans wounded in that last year of being there after the change in mission. But this is what ending it looks like. President Obama today saying today that it, it will still be a dangerous environment, that we will still need to do force protection. But the mission is going to change. This is how we start to leave. And it's going to happen as of this spring, which is a surprise, which is faster than anybody said it was going to happen. Now, the justification for speeding up the way out, I have to admit, is a little holy. It, uh, holy with an E, not holy as in, oh. uh, President Obama saying today that what he called the acceleration was made possible in part because of the progress that's been made in terms of Afghan security forces, their capacity to take the lead. Now, I don't really know anything about the strength of Afghan security forces, and neither do you, unless you're just back from the war, in which case, welcome home. Uh, but the Pentagon's report to Congress on that subject which reportedly was ready before the election this year, but did not get released until after the election for some reason. The official U.S. Pentagon report on the readiness of Afghan security forces says, far from Afghan security forces being ready to take the lead, it says that out of 23 Afghan army brigades, only one of those 23 brigades is capable of operating independently without support from international or U.S. troops. This is the graphic in that report that says that. Brilliant graphic, right? This is how the Pentagon presents data that it doesn't really want to make headlines. But I can interpret it for you. You see the 23 that I've circled there? That's the number of brigades. How many of those brigades can operate, see there, independent with advisors? Well, oh, one. One of 23. Even if you're bad at math, you can tell that's not good. The same report, the Pentagon's own report, showed that after the U.S. troop surge in Afghanistan, violence in that country was actually higher than it was before the surge, not lower than it was before the surge. So in what case was the surge a success? So yeah, it is, it is a bit rich that the reason we can afford to speed up the ending of this war is because things have worked out so well in this war. It's a bit rich, right? But you know what? The supposed reason we could leave Iraq was because of the stable, democratic Iraqi government we left behind, right? Success of the surge and all that. Well, the day after we left Iraq, the Prime Minister of Iraq issued an arrest warrant for the Vice President of Iraq. The very next day after we left. So that little story we told ourselves on the way out of that war, that was pretty rich, too. But knowing that, do you wish we were still in Iraq? Do you wish we hadn't left? More importantly, even if we do not hit any of the supposed benchmarks that we tell ourselves are relevant for why and when we can leave, peace in the provinces, or the Afghan government getting less corrupt, or the development of trustworthy and capable Afghan security forces, even if we have not met any of those benchmarks, do you believe that the U.S. fighting there longer, the U.S. fighting this war for a 13th year, a 14th year, a 15th year, would get us closer to those benchmarks than 12 years of fighting have gotten us thus far? Will staying longer help? You really believe that? Or do you stay as long as you can and do what you can and then do you go? Today, quietly and without much ceremony, today, President Obama announced that we will go sooner than we had been led to believe we could hope for. In a way that felt familiar for a reason. Starting this spring, our troops will have a different mission. Training, advising, 
assisting Afghan forces. Going forward, a transitional force of U.S. troops will remain in Iraq with a different mission, advising and assisting Iraq's security forces. Afghans will have full responsibility for their security. And the Iraqi people now have lead responsibility for the security of their country. We still face significant challenges. Many challenges remain. But because of this progress, our transition is on track. This completes a transition to Iraqi responsibility for their own security. President Barack Obama is still in his first term as president. He's not been inaugurated for a second term yet, right? President Obama's predecessor started two of the longest wars in U.S. history and never finished them. In this president's first term, he has already ended one of those wars, and he is now ending the second one. And he is doing it in the same way that he ended the first one. It has been a long time coming. For America's military families who are in their 12th straight year now of multiple deployments, years of deployments in support of two wars, two of the longest wars in this country's history that 99% of this country has not fought in, for Afghanistan, for America's military, for America's military families, this is a long time coming. This is a long time coming. This is a very long time coming. So we've been telling you for a long time about the drone strikes and how they're counterproductive and how they kill civilians. In fact, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism uh, says that uh, we have killed anywhere between 558 to 1,119 civilians in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia alone. And they're being very conservative in their estimates. Uh, in fact, I just read an article about how there was one strike in North Waziristan alone where we killed 40 civilians. Of course, the government, it was in 2011, immediately came out and said, oh, no, 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 those were all militants. When the New York Times, The Guardian, the Bureau of Investigative Journalism went down there, they're like, no, they were definitely civilians. So uh, it's just not true. In fact, Stanley McChrystal, who used to run our campaign in Afghanistan, uh, he even said, quote, the resentment created by American use of unmanned strikes is much greater than the average American appreciates. Well, uh, that is certainly true. And that's uh, some of our top generals, of course, in this case, former general, uh, telling us that. Now, he's not the only one. Uh, Pentagon General Counsel Jay Johnson is retiring. Now, remember, he's the general counsel to the Pentagon. And he even says, come on, man, these wars are endless. Quote, now that efforts by the U.S. military against al-Qaeda are in their 12th year, we must also ask ourselves, how will this conflict end? War must be regarded as finite, extraordinary, and an unnatural state of affairs. We must not accept the current conflict and all that it entails as the new normal. Now, of course, they always say this on their way out, <laughs> but it, the reality is the Pentagon completely accepts it as the new normal, they do not view it as an unnatural state of affairs, and they say that there is no end to it. When asked, the Obama administration uh, officials have told uh, the press that the war on terror will continue for at least another 10 years. We don't know what's going to happen in three years, five years, or seven years, but it doesn't really matter, because we have always been at war. 
<laughs> George Orwell tried to warn us. I think they took it as a manual for what to do, unfortunately. Uh, Matthew Rosenberg from the New York Times says, but behind it all, many senior coalition and Afghan officials are now considering that after nearly 12 years of war, the view of foreigners held by many Afghans has come to mirror that of the Taliban. Hope has turned into hatred, and some will find a reason to act on those feelings. To which I say, of course, of course, they don't even remember why we're there. My favorite poll was done in an area of uh, Afghanistan where they asked, why are the U.S. soldiers here? And they asked them about 9-11. And I believe it was less than 10% that knew what 9-11 was. They think that we're just there to occupy them, that we're a foreign army, so they're fighting us. We're in their valley. They fight anybody that comes in their valley, whether it's the Russians or the Persians or Alexander the Great or the Americans. So of course they've forgotten what we're fighting for. 9-11 was so long ago. The people who did 9-11 aren't in Afghanistan. We killed one of them in Pakistan. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed is in custody. This doesn't have anything to do with 9-11 anymore. It has to do with endless war. Glenn Greenwald, as usual, explains it best. Quote, as always, the U.S., through their very policies of aggression and militarism, justified in the name of terrorism, is creating the very terrorists those policies are supposedly designed to combat. It's a pure and perfect system of self-perpetuation. Now think about that. If you wanted endless wars, and you're as an example, a defense contractor who profited off those endless wars, and you can look at their stock prices before uh, Iraq war and after the Iraq war and see for yourself. They made tremendous profits, and they gained tremendous value because of those wars. What would you do? Would you perhaps be interested in creating a situation where we never quite finish the war? Now look, I don't think it's a conspiracy in that they get together in a room and on this one, I might be wrong. But I don't think they get together in a room and say, hey, you know what, let's do the constant drone strikes so that we turn people in Pakistan and Yemen into terrorists and they fight us and they bomb us and we start a whole other war. But they do somehow convince themselves that what is profitable for them is the right course of action. We must be ever vigilant in going after the terrorists. And you know those terrorists, they are endless, right? So we had to do those drone strikes. What could we do? And you know, like sometimes we're not sure it's a terrorist. It's a signal strike, a strike where we just we don't know who it is. But better safe than sorry. But that isn't safe. It's just sorry. Glenn continues. If you are a U.S. leader or an official of the national security state, or a beneficiary of the private military and surveillance industries, why would you possibly want the war on terror to end? That would be the worst thing that could happen. It's that. It's that war that generates limitless power, impenetrable secrecy, and unquestioning citizenry, and massive profit. Now, those things are true. You can draw any conclusion you like from them if you think, you know, oh, come on, the defense contractors wouldn't do that. The guys at the Pentagon, who almost all at the high levels get paid a tremendous amount of money from the defense contractors as soon as they retire, they wouldn't take that into consideration. And all those people that give money to the politicians, those co same defense contractors, those politicians wouldn't take that money into consideration. You might be right, you might also be wrong. And Glenn also points out what Cicero said. Quote, in times of war, 
the law falls silent. And think about this. If the war never ends, that means the law is always silent. That we don't have to follow the law, we don't have to follow the Constitution. The new law is lawlessness. And to that point, my final quote is from Senator Ron White, who is outraged that we can actually execute U.S. citizens abroad without a trial. And that if, even if United States congressmen actually ask for those records, do you know that if the congressmen or the courts ask for the legal opinion that allows the executive branch to execute a U.S. citizen without a trial, they say, sorry, that's top secret. We can't even share it with the people's representatives or the judges that will be judging us in the cases that are brought forward. Does that sound like a democracy to you? Senator Wyden says, this situation is unacceptable for the executive branch to claim that intelligence agencies have the authority to kill American citizens, but refuse to provide Congress with any and all legal opinions that explain the executive branch's understanding of this authority represents an alarming and indefensible assertion of ex executive prerogative. He's only 100% right about that. We've got to stop this madness. It doesn't make us any safer. It makes us less safe. It costs us a tremendous amount of money. That money goes somewhere. Those people are very happy about that situation. The rest of us should be incredibly unhappy about that situation. And then finally, to add insult to injury, they then also use the war as an excuse to take away our fundamental rights. We've got to fight back. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Here's John McCain. You're, you're um, well, I mean, I don't know that anybody knows more about the real I'm John you. McCain than you do, but uh, here's John McCain desperately seeking someone else to believe that John McCain was right about Iraq. Uh, here it is. Do you, do you stand by that, th those, those comments, uh, Senator Hagel? Uh, well, Senator, I stand by them because I made them. And, you stand um, by, were you right? Were you well, correct in your assessment? Well, I would defer to the judgment of history to uh, put I, that the out. But the I'll, committee deserves your judgment as to whether you were right or wrong about the surge. I'll explain why I made those comments. And I want to know if you were right or wrong. That's a direct question. I expect a direct answer. The, the surge uh, assisted uh, in the objective, but but if we review the record a little uh, bit, will you please answer the question? Were you correct or incorrect when you said that the surge would be the most dangerous foreign policy blunder in this country since Vietnam? Were you I, correct or incorrect? My yes or no. Uh, my reference to the search being the most dangerous. Hagel? The question is, were you right or wrong? That's a pretty straightforward question. Uh, well, I, I would like to answer whether you were right or wrong, and then you are free to elaborate. 
Well, I'm not going to give you a, a yes or no answer well, on a lot of things. Well, let the record show that today. you refuse to answer that question. Now, please go ahead. Well, uh, if you uh, would like me to explain um, why... Oh, I, I actually uh, would like an answer. Yes or no? Well, I'm not going to give you a yes or no. I think okay. it's far more complicated than that. As I've already said, my answer is I'll defer that judgment to history. Uh, as to uh, the comment I made about the most dangerous foreign policy decision since Vietnam was about uh, not just the surge but the overall uh, war of choice going into Iraq. Um, that... Uh, particular decision that was made on the surge, uh, but more to the point, our war in Iraq, uh, I think was uh, the most fundamental, a bad, dangerous decision since Vietnam. Now, I mean, I think his point is well taken there. He could have said it a far uh, more eloquently. He could have said, uh, no, in retrospect, that was the second biggest mistake we made. The first one was Iraq, and then the second one was compounding uh, the issue there and keeping us in there longer than than necessary. Uh, but but tell me the background. You know John McCain, not personally, uh, but you wrote the, the book. He called me unstable. And called me a known liar. So it's almost like we're buddies. <laughs> it's close. <laughs> um, uh, Cliff wrote the uh, the book, The Real McCain, back in the day. Uh, so give me give us some background on Hegel and McCain. Well, a, a few quick things. First of all, that's that's classic McCain. That's the bully. That's the guy I wrote about in my book. Who, who with the, the side of him, the anger that drives John McCain more than anything else, revenge. Um, and, and I'll get to that in two seconds, why he needs revenge against Hegel, what led him to call his wife the see you next Tuesday. Everybody mm. can figure that one out, I'm sure. Uh, led him to physically assault a congressman, uh, you know, from his own delegation after taunting the guy. Led him to throw all sorts of, of, uh, four-letter insults at John Cornyn, Chuck Grassley, Pete Domenici. Not to say that I wouldn't like to do that sometimes. Right. Uh, but this man was a senator on the floor and, th and tried to physically threaten people. This is, this is who he is. Um, and, and with Hegel, it fits that pattern perfectly because Hegel and McCain actually were once good buddies when McCain was more sane before he went the neocon route and, and got in with those guys. McCain was once a guy who actually, uh, called for us to pull out of, 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 uh, 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 oh, it's not coming to me. I'm losing my mind. But Lebanon, sorry, Libya kept popping in. Called first to pull out of Lebanon in 1983 after the, the barracks attack. Um, he was a guy who, who was not a neocon of any sort. He was much more like Hegel and other people who had been to wars and were more more careful about it. He went total neocon in the late 90s for a variety of reasons, dealing to dealing with his party, getting the nomination, who who was advising him, and other things like that. But to make a long story short. He and he and Hegel had been friends, and so in 2000, as both you know, both guys that were injured in war, in, in 2000 when McCain ran, Hegel was only one of four senators that endorsed John McCain over George W. Bush. Uh, most of the Senate hated McCain because of his personality and went with Bush. Um, late, but what happened is, as Hegel started coming out against the war, and McCain went in the opposite direction and said, surge, surge, surge. And by the way, for anybody listening, it was the Sunni awakening and a variety of other things, not the surge, which led to over a thousand more American troops dying, uh, and, and untold other horrors over there. Uh, but, but as, as Hegel started to question the very premise of the war, which is something that John McCain can't allow to happen, because then he would have to admit that he pushed for us to go into a war that was completely ill thought out, uh, was was completely idiotic, and frankly, yeah, pretty close to being a war crime, if not one. Um, 
And and so so Hegel came out very publicly around 2006 2007, and they really broke in a serious way. Um, and McCain started to hate him after that. And Hegel, in the end, Hegel's wife endorsed Obama in 2008. Was, Hegel just sort of stayed neutral, but refused to endorse McCain. It was pretty clear whose side Hegel was on. So this is so this is now all personal. Is what people should know. It's well beyond. It's that Hegel questioned McCain's judgment, and nobody ever questions McCain's judgment on Iraq without personally saying, "I'm questioning McCain's judgment." He just said, "I'm questioning the, the you know, the, the justification for having done this. That we made a terrible mistake." Hegel actually did support the war with his vote at the time, but was sort of one of these guys that was sort of hesitant, and I think felt terrible when he saw how it turned out. Um, to give him some credit, and I'm not saying Hegel's perfect, because on a whole number of issues, I think he's terrible. But I think it, on this, as someone who had been to war and understands what that's like, he came to realize uh, an error he made and wanted to speak out about it even before most Democrats were. And to McCain, that was a, a direct personal challenge to King McCain. And so, uh, and nobody, and nobody does that. And then when his wife sort of made it obvious, Hegel's wife, that they were supporting Obama in 2008 over him. I mean, of course. That was it. Right. Nobody puts McCain in the corner. When our founders were drafting the Constitution, they went out of their way to give war-making powers to Congress and not to the President. They understood that if the President could make war on his own, he'd be no different than a king. And they also understood, as James Madison said, that such power would be too much temptation for one man, and so they vested that power in Congress. But since World War II, one president after another has usurped that power, and the latest usurper is President Obama, who did so in Libya and with drones, and now is prepared to do so in cyberspace. According to the New York Times, the Obama administration has concluded that the president has the authority to launch preemptive cyber attacks. This is a very dangerous and very undemocratic power grab, and it will lead to a cyber arms race. It will also raise fears among nuclear powers like Russia, China, China and North Korea that the U.S. may use a cyber attack as the opening move in a nuclear attack. For if the U.S. can knock out the command and control structure of an enemy's nuclear arsenal, it can then launch an all-out nuclear attack on that enemy with impunity. I don't think Obama would do that, but our adversaries may not be so sure either about Obama or his successors. They, too, need to worry about the temptations of a president. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Some new reporting on 
how large the extraordinary rendition program was under the Bush administration. The Open Society Foundation has done some great work here in finding out that 54 different governments were involved. Some would just allow us to use airspace, others would help us torture detainees that we had. So it was a whole range, okay? And it involved 136 prisoners that we uh, basically kidnapped. That's the the real word for extraordinary rendition and that we tortured and that we would send them to places like Egypt, Libya and Syria to get tortured. Now think about that for a second. In the Bush administration, we were sending people to Muammar Gaddafi so that he could torture them on our behalf. How lovely. But that's okay because Obama put an end to it. The one thing Obama's not doing is torture. He would never do that. Now we explain, uh, we go back and explain the Bush years. Extraordinary renditions uh, was also a factor in one of the greatest intelligence blunders of the Bush years. Uh, Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi, a Libyan national and uh, top al-Qaeda operative who was detained in Pakistan in late 2001, was later sent by the, by the U.S. to Egypt. There, under the threat of torture, he alleged that Saddam Hussein had trained al-Qaeda in biological and chemical warfare. He later withdrew the claim, but not before the U.S. invaded Iraq, in part based on his faulty testimony. Now, the only thing wrong with that reporting from the Huffington Post is that that was not a blunder. That was the whole point. You know, people are always like, man, why did Cheney and Bush want to do that torture so bad when obviously the tor uh, torture reveals information that's not reliable? Bingo. Cheney didn't want information that was reliable. He wanted to scare the living hell out of Al-Libi, which they did mock executions of. They said they were going to bury him alive. And then he said, okay, fine, what do you want to hear? I've told you everything that I can imagine making up. Now, okay, all right, what do you, okay, uh, uh, Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. They're like, yes, that's what we wanted to hear. Okay, bring him up, he's fine. Uh, don't execute him or torture him anymore. We got exactly what we wanted. We bring that evidence to Congress, to the United Nations, and say, oh my God, Al-Libi said that Saddam and Al-Qaeda are working together. It was never true, of course, and later it was proven to be false. But the Extraordinary Rendition Program did exactly what it was supposed to do, produce false evidence. Now, uh, the Bush administration people used to make excuses for it. They would say, as Huffington Post explains, although Bush administration officials said they never intentionally sent terrorism suspects abroad in order to be tortured, the countries where the prisoners seemed to end up, Egypt, Libya, and Syria, among others, were known to utilize coercive interrogation techniques. But don't worry, as I told you, Obama came in, first order was stopping uh, torture and, and, and closing down those secret prisons that the CIA was using. Now, so obviously he also ended the extraordinary rendition program, right? Nope. Huffington Post explains. But Obama did not fully end the pra uh, practice of rendition, which permits the U.S. to circumvent any due process obligations for terrorism suspects. Instead, the administration said it was relying on the less certain diplomatic assurances of host countries that they would not torture suspects sent to them for pre-trial detention. Well, that would be the same exact thing as the Bush administration. They told us, oh, no, 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 we have received diplomatic assurances from Muammar Gaddafi and Hosni Mubarak and Bashar al-Assad that they will not torture these people that we have sent them. Oh, golly gee, did they violate that diplomatic assurance? <laughs> now, the same exact excuse 
being used, of course, by the Obama administration. And uh, at least the OSF report, the people who put together the report initially, recognizes this obvious fact. They say in the report, quote, this decision was tantamount to continuing the program. Extraordinary renditions under President Obama, not so extraordinary. As with almost every other violation of the Constitution and civil liberties by the Bush administration, President Obama has basically said, I can do you one better. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. I was watching Press the Meat with uh, David Gregory, and he had Leon Panetta on and the new Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they were lamenting about the sequester that might go through, right? So if the, you know, we all know about the sequester, automatic cuts that are so draconian and so horrible that people would definitely act before letting that happen, right? Mm. So uh, here's, what they, here's what they asked him about the, uh, what, what's going to happen with the, if the sequester goes through. Let me tell you, if sequester happens, it is going to badly damage the readiness of the United States of America. And, and by readiness, he means the ability to spend trillions of dollars on shit they don't even tell him about. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to tell him. Yeah, yeah. So we need every dollar we've got now because that's our only hope of getting twice as much next year. <laughs> that's our plan. We have the most powerful military force uh, on the face of the earth right now. Yeah, we're the most powerful force on the face of the earth right now. I didn't realize it. it'd make more sense to say we aren't. <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah, what's he doing? We, he should have said we aren't the most powerful. We need more money if you want us to be the most powerful. We're well, not yet. We're going to need more, more trillions. Yeah, but if you want logic, don't go to the Pentagon, okay? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, we need to be able to fight two wars at the same time with zero chance of winning either one. <laughs> but it's two. It's, it's two. two at once. That's Think I've never even thought of it that way. We're, we're, we're fighting two wars at once. Not a chance to win either of them. <laughs> Wow, wow. It might seem like a ridiculously high amount of money, but you should see the way those soldiers eat. <laughs> <laughs> They're hungry, those guys. So well, let me just play it. Here's what he says if the sequester goes let through. Let me tell you, if sequester happens, it is going to badly damage the readiness of the United States of America. We have the most powerful military force uh, on the face of the earth right now. He sounds very serious because they're going to cut mm. his money. Mm. But I don't know if you remember, last year I played this clip on the show when Scott Pelley from 60 Minutes asked him this question. In how many countries are we currently engaged in a shooting war? It's a good question. <laughs> you know, it's, you uh, have to stop and count. <laughs> I'll have to stop and think about that. Uh, but you need more money. <laughs> I don't know how many wars we're even in, but we need more money. Those are some funny wars, though. I know. For, oh, those are. Those are hilarious. You see, he's, he's, he's really getting a good job. So do you know how many bases we have in the, in the world? 
Uh, nobody really knows. That's <laughs> nobody a true knows. story. Oh, really? Nobody Not even knows. Leon Panetta. No one really can mm. say whether it's uh, 900 bases around the world mm. or 1,000 bases or 11,000 bases in foreign lands. What's undeniable is that the United States military maintains an empire of bases so large and shadowy that no one, not even the Pentagon, really knows its full size and scope. An honest count of U.S. bases abroad, a true, full, and comprehensive list, would be a tiny first step in the necessary process of downsizing the global mission. Okay, this is all true. This is, and he's, and he's making it sound like if you cut money from the military, the military that already spends ten times more than the rest of the world combined. I don't know if that's accurate, but I'm, I'm using hyperbole here. It's a lot. It's a lot. We definitely spend more on military than the next ten countries combined. I bet. So we're to fight a, an enemy that isn't out there. We're fighting this stuff with SEAL Team Six going in to get and drones. Do we really need a trillion dollar budget for the Pentagon? So here he so here's he goes on even more scare tactics. Uh, it is important in terms of providing stability and peace in the world. If sequester goes into effect and we have to do the kind of cuts that will go right at readiness, right at maintenance, right at training, we are going to weaken the United States and make it much more difficult for us to respond to the crisis in the world. Yeah, well, you know, if you could be any any more less specific, <laughs> I think he'd be talking about the weather. We can't <laughs> respond to crisis within the United States. <laughs> no. What are we supposed to do throughout the, the world? And it's like they keep uh, saying that we're supposed to have this military presence throughout the world. I just can't tell you why. I can't tell you why or where it is or what kind of crisis we would actually need to respond to. What is he talking about, a crisis? We, we've had crisis all over the place. We had Egypt. What did we do? To, nothing. What did we do in Tunisia? Nothing. What are, we're, we're not doing anything in these crises. We're creating crises. The only things we do, we go into Afghanistan and Iraq, we create crises. Okay. So here he goes. He's got a little bit more to say. But I have to tell you, it is irresponsible for it to happen. I mean, why... Why, in God's name, would members of Congress elected by the American people take a step that would badly damage our national defense, but more importantly, undermine the support for our men and women in uniform? Why would you do that? Um, I'm going to say because we don't need to spend all that money, because <laughs> we don't have an enemy like we used to. Maybe that's why. And maybe you hiding behind the skirts of soldiers is pretty despicable, I will say. My point is that anyone who'd vote to cut the Pentagon budget, I guess you'd rather have those brave men and women fight our enemies with rocks and sticks, huh? <laughs> is that what you're saying? You, you want to cut the Pentagon? Yeah, you know what? You can tell Leon Panetta felt so strongly about this that he managed to stop giggling. <laughs> he pulled himself together. Yeah. Really? So he really cares about our men and women in uniform? And they can't tell you, Steph, how these cuts are going to affect us. They can't tell you. They won't tell you specifically. What, so all of a sudden, is Russia going to invade us? Who's going to come after us so if, all of a sudden if we cut the Pentagon? So here they have the Joint, joint Chiefs of Staff and uh, Chuck Todd asking the direct question. But explain specifically. Sequester, are we less safe? We will become less safe. How? I'll tell you how. Do you think he's going to tell oh, us how? Get ready for the answer. Or maybe I won't. Do you think he's going to tell us how? I, I, or do you think he's going to obfuscate? Let's see. We first of all, it's not just sequester. That's the piece of this that's been missing in the discussion. We're also operating under a continuing resolution. The accumulative, the, the combined. Of <laughs>
I'm, sn- I'm snoring over here. That's my snore. The continuing resolution. What, what, is he, so what does he say? He can't. How is this? Good? Well, we are. So sequester and, and, uh, and the continuing resolution creates a, a magnitude of cut in the mm. last half of the year. Mm. We have to absorb $52 billion when you count the effects of both sequestration and, uh, sequ- and the continuing resolution in the last half of the year. When some of that money is already committed, and the only place you can go and get it under that circumstance is readiness. It's operations, it's maintenance, and it's training. Yeah, so that, see, they need that money. See, he still didn't tell us how this is going to... Yeah. We need that money at the end of the year for readiness, operations, maintenance, and, of course, the big Christmas party. <laughs> <laughs> everyone enjoys that. Yes, everyone enjoys Readiness is crucially important, especially now with women going into combat, and you know how long it takes them to get ready. <laughs> Billions of dollars. I mean, to cut $52 billion from the Pentagon budget, they'd have to drastically eliminate stupid decisions, which constitutes 89% of their decisions. <laughs> we cannot afford it. Chuck, do you have any idea how many bullets they go through every day? <laughs> and that's just the, the accidental shootings of their own guys. <laughs> A lot of accidental shootings. And they don't think that um, our economy makes us vulnerable to what's happening throughout the world, that if the, the banks looks like they're going to go under again, that that's yes. not going to make our country even more vulnerable. Than- I, that's what I say. So we, so according to this guy, we can't we can never cut the Pentagon. You can even though there's not an enemy out there, even though we spend 10 times what the next 10 countries, no matter what, we can't even though there isn't. Can't cut the because if we don't spend more money than the rest of the world and Jupiter, hmm. we just might all be killed by Al Qaeda. Well, there's this you know it's like a sacred thing, especially for the uh, for the right wing, but uh, but it's a sacred thing that like we have to spend all the money in the budget that we possibly can. So if we do get attacked, God forbid. We'll say, well, at least that we tried. We had, we put all the money in it. But if you cut a billion, or if you cut any amount, and then we get attacked. Well, that's because we cut that billion. <laughs> that's the superstition of yes, it. Yes, that's the superstition. The U.S. affinity for anti-democratic regimes in the Arab world is no secret, but you're not supposed to say that out loud if you're a made member of the opinion-making elites. But that's what Fareed Zakaria did in his January 30th Washington Post column, where he contrasted the violence and political chaos in Egypt to the relatively peaceful dictatorial monarchies in Morocco and Jordan. Egypt took the wrong path during the Arab Spring, says Zakaria, implementing, quote, too much democracy too soon, close quote. 
In Jordan, by contrast, the king didn't rush to elections, but instead, quote, appointed a council to propose changes to the constitution, close quote, and adopted measured changes. The best role models for the region, he wrote, might well be two small monarchies, Jordan and Morocco, who've, quote, chosen evolution over revolution, close quote. The rush to democracy in Egypt has resulted in more than just violence. Zakaria points to media censorship, thanks to laws against blasphemy and insulting the government. But he fails to contrast this with Jordan, and for good reason. Reporters Without Borders says that Zakaria's role model monarchy has, quote, brushed aside all the reform promises that the government gave at the height of the popular unrest in 2011, close quote. The group reports that new decrees drastically restrict freedom and that, quote, journalists are being tried before military courts, especially when they criticize the royal family, close quote. If Sicaria cared about freedom or democracy, he would know all this. But what he really seems to care about is what all U.S. elites care about, stable Arab regimes the U.S. can work with. And dictatorships are good for that. This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. As most of you know, President Obama nominated John Brennan to head the CIA. John Brennan is a great guy, moderate arm wrestler, and loving dog sitter. A quick glance at his ChristianMingle.com profile will tell you that he enjoys long walks on the beach in Normandy, reading Fifty Shades of Grey by the fire, and then, if there's time, torturing and bombing unarmed men and women. And if we Americans are too squeamish for a certain level of torture, Brennan also enjoys extraordinary rendition, which sounds nice, doesn't it? It sounds like... You know, I just saw Les Mis on the big screen, and I must say, it was an extraordinary rendition of the singing and dancing that took place on the front lines of the Paris Uprising of 1832. Oh, Anne Hathaway deserves an Oscar nod, and Hugh Jackman deserves to suck on my... But no, extraordinary rendition is, of course, the practice of sending people we really want tortured to countries that don't mind violating human rights so much. But luckily, we've been able to save money on a lot of flights because we're totally into human rights violation. We're down for all the indefinite detention and torture light fun you can muster. Hell, over 60 prisoners at Guantanamo have been approved for release by the courts years ago, and we don't release them anyway. We don't give a f what are they going to do? Call their lawyer? <laughs> can't breathe, can't breathe, can't breathe, can't breathe. Unless you think Brennan only violates the rights of people without white skin, no, no. He's the number one fan of warrantless wiretapping on American citizens. On every unconstitutional wiretapping day, he shows up at the office shirtless with wire painted on his face and tap that ass painted across his chest. He then sits there in the wiretap room going, Yeah! Yeah! Oh, and 
I can't forget to mention drone attacks. Brennan doesn't just cheer for drone attacks. He does their PR for them, often lying and saying no civilians have been killed. Thanks to John Brennan, George Bush, Barack Obama, and many others, we didn't just seed the moral high ground. We dug a little hole in the top of it and then carefully dipped our in. That's right. We teabagged the moral high ground. I hope the history books don't forget that part when they tell the kiddies about it. No, I hope there's a graphic diagram. Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast, where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things, like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. And even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at Lee camp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it. Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook, get it at leecamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. Just one more thing. Uh, this was 2007, an interview with CBS News. Watch. CIA has acknowledged that it has detained about a hundred terrorists since 9-11 and about a third of them have been subjected to what the CIA refers to as enhanced uh, interrogation tactics and only a small proportion of those have in fact been uh, subjected to the most serious types of, right. of uh, enhanced procedure. And you say some of this has, has borne fruit. There have been a lot of information that has come out from these interrogation procedures that the agency has in fact used against the real hardcore terrorists. It has saved lives. Torture work, torture saved lives. That is what John Brennan said in 2007 after leaving the CIA and the National Counterterrorism Center. It's a 2007 interview with CBS. That statement is in part what derailed his chance of running the CIA the first time President Obama wanted to put him in charge there, which is back at the start of his first term. Since then, the Senate Intelligence Committee has produced a comprehensive, three years in the making, 6,000-page report on torture during the Bush administration. The report is classified. They finished it. Before today's hearing, they gave it to John Brennan. They said, in effect, here, read this. Do you still believe torture saves lives? Watch. When I was quoted in 2007, that there was valuable intelligence that came out from those uh, interrogation sessions. That's why I did say that they saved lives. I must tell you, Senator, that reading this report from the committee uh, raises serious questions about the information that I was given at the time and the impression I had at that time. Now I have to determine what, based on that information as well as what CIA says, what the truth is. And at this point, Senator, I do not know what the truth is. If he is confirmed as director of the CIA, John Brennan will have to decide, along with the Intelligence Committee and the White House, whether or not to declassify that report, or sections of that report, that changed his mind about whether torture works, whether torture saved lives. If he's head of the CIA, John Brennan's going to have a major say in whether or not you and I get to see this comprehensive report that changed his mind about the efficacy of torture. I would like to see what changed the mind of the guy who actually worked at the CIA and in counterterrorism while this stuff was going on. What did the Senate Intelligence Committee find and put in that report that not even John Brennan knew about when he was inside that agency? I would like to know that.
Wouldn't you? I watched just about as much of John Brennan's testimony as I could stomach, but he did make me feel like I was going to be sick at any moment. His Orwellian news speak was dizzying as when he said, we need to optimize transparency and at the same time optimize secrecy. His whitewashing of the CIA's historical role gave me a headache. He said that after 9-11, the agency got involved in activities that were an aberration from its traditional role. Actually, those activities were not an aberration at all, but fully in keeping with what the CIA did in Vietnam and Laos in the 1960s and what it did in El Salvador and Guatemala and Nicaragua in the late 1970s and 80s, just to name a few examples. Brennan boasted that the administration's policy on killing American citizens abroad was very disciplined and very judicious. We only take such actions, he said, as a last resort to save lives when there's no other alternative. But that didn't explain his drone killing of 16-year-old Abdul Rahman al-Awlaki, who was born in New Mexico and was no imminent threat to anybody. Most nauseating of all, he got theatrical about the agony he goes through in deciding who to kill. Just compare his agony to the actual agony of the families of the innocent people he's killed with his drones. That's the ultimate in the category, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I'm Matt Rothschild. And that's how I see it. What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all John Rizzo was uh, a person who was a top lawyer for the CIA uh, during the Bush years. Uh, he served two terms and uh, covered most of the Bush era. Now, since he was a general counsel, he made a decision on whether to authorize torture or not. Now, John Brennan was at the CIA at the, at the time, working underneath Bush. He later came out and said, oh, man, enhanced interrogation techniques. When I was at the CIA, I mean, I wasn't involved in that program at all, but I would privately tell everybody, how much I was opposed to that program. Now, there's never any record of it. There's detailed emails that involve John Brennan knowing about the torture program. There's never an email that says John Brennan actually objected. Uh, so John Rizzo weighed in on that, and he's first of all, he says, look, quote, John Brennan is a longtime friend. I hope and trust he will be confirmed. I think he'll be an excellent CIA director. So obviously Rizzo is going to back Brennan on the fact that Brennan objected to the program, right? I love this quote, quote, but the fact of the matter is, he never told, he never expressed any concerns to me, and my office was 15 feet away from his. I would have liked to have thought that he would have done so, 
or at least I would have heard about them because that would have had a great impact on me because I have great respect for him. Now, so here's a guy who's not opposed to John Brennan. As he says, he likes him, he thinks he'd be an excellent director, etc. And he says, I might have changed my mind if the guy sitting 15 feet from me just came into my office and said, you know what, I don't think this is a good idea. That's devastating. Not only did Brennan not say anything and lied about it, but he might have had an impact. He might have made a difference. We might not have tortured people if Brennan actually said something. Rizzo goes on to say, I just never heard from him directly or ever heard that he had expressed any concerns to colleagues. I've talked to other agency veterans because to tell you the truth, it did mean something to me. It would have been something I would have wanted to know at the time and I can't find anybody who remembers that. That's not just like a normal elbow from the sky. That's a steel cage match. He got all the way up there 25 feet or so and was like, whoa, here's what I say to you, Brennan, and your nonsense about, oh, I didn't like the program, and I would secretly whisper to people about how I didn't like the program. Here's the guy who authorized the torture program at the CIA saying, I asked everybody, nobody had ever heard of John Brennan objecting, and if he had objected, it would have made a difference. Don't believe a word out of John Brennan's mouth. Remember, John Brennan is the guy who said in the beginning that we killed no civilians with the drone strikes. Now, Brave New Films has done a devastating video about that that shows you the reality of it. Now, it's stark. You're going to see kids who are here who have passed away. So I'm giving you a warning, okay? But this is the reality of life. Watch. Mr. Brennan, please proceed. Thank you, Chairman Feinstein. Maya Zalkan, three years old, South Waziristan, January 23, 2007. Noor Saeed, eight years old, South Waziristan, February 14, 2007. The American people will be quite pleased to know that we've been very disciplined, very judicious, and we only use these capabilities as a last resort. Naeem Ula, 10 years old, North Waziristan, October 18, 2010. Tariq Aziz, 16 years old, North Waziristan. I have been a strong proponent of trying to be as open as possible with these programs as far as our explaining what we're doing. What we need to do is optimize transparency on these issues, but at the same time, optimize secrecy and the protection of our national security. Fatima Khan, North Waziristan, May 21, 2010. Zayed Wali Shah. Seven years old. The figures we have obtained from the executive branch Aisha, confirm that the number of civilian casualties Khan. has typically been in the single digits. Naeem Khan. North when I ask to give out the actual numbers, I'm told you can't Orphans of the because it's classified. Well, I think that rationale is long gone. Now that's a powerful video, because those are journalists that went in and confirmed that number is probably low, because they didn't include things that they can't confirm. And you saw the pictures for yourselves. And they say single digits, Diane Feinstein says, to cover up for Brennan. Brennan had ori originally said no civilians were killed, and then he said maybe a few were killed later when that was caught to be an obvious lie. John Brennan lied about the torture program and his knowledge about it and his so-called objections to it. He lied about the drone program. By the way, the new nickname people have given him is Dr. Drone. He's the one that uh, decides who's on the kill list. And you saw who just got killed in some of our drone strikes in that video yourself. And this is the guy we want to be the head of the CIA. 
This is the guy who says, oh, he's tortured by the decisions that he makes, and he takes them so seriously, and that, it, that we should trust him because he's a serious man with a serious conscience. I don't trust him. I don't believe a word he says, and he's got no business running the CIA. on your last episode, I was going to uh, reinforce their points, and the example I was bringing up was uh, the Yes-Men. The Yes-Men pulled their prank on Dow Chemical by posting a bogus website as Dow Chemical, and they made a press release that they were going to pay reimbursements to the people of Bhopal, India, after the Union Carbide disaster. Instantaneously, overnight, their Dow Chemical stock plummeted, and... Dow Chemical tried to go after the Yes-Men. Their little prank illustrates how a corporation and the entire system <laughs> is set up so that when a corporation does the right thing, that they're punished. And so really, as far as it being, you know, immoral, amoral, you know, it's just, the whole thing is just flat out ridiculously bad. A corporation is going to get penalized for taking care of the people whose lives they destroyed. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous, man. Jay, love the show. Hi, Jay, this is Tom. Just a quick note. Uh, you made a comment that corporations can do nothing but pursue money, and that, that uh, I, I just, I, I cannot accept that. I think there are many corporations that uh, not, <laughs> there are many corporations that are bad, yes. But there are many corporations that do a lot of good in society. They give some of their profits, as it were, back into the community to, to help either nonprofits, to help the homeless, and, and just do a lot of good things. And, and to say that corporations are just powerless to do anything but make money, that's another way of saying that we as individuals are powerless to do anything about it. And that's where the whole essence is that we as individuals have the power because we can make little decisions when we see corporations that are doing bad things, we can turn away from them. If it's a bank, we can go to a credit union. We can just not go to that bank and go to another one. We can we can speak up when we see something that's wrong. The whole essence has to do with regaining our power and becoming more vocal and, and supporting those those corporations that do good and going away from corporations that don't have the public interest at heart. Uh, also, maybe the next step would be to approach your legislatures and just make it known that, that you as a, a voter will not, you, you want to see legislation that limits the power or the responsibility that the corporations have in our society. It's a, it's a very big issue, uh, and I, I applaud all that you're doing to, to, to bring issues to uh, the public attention. So thank you for what you're doing, and, and maybe a, a future show might address the power that people have and how we can take back more of our power. Thank you again for what you do. Have a blessed day. 
Hey Jay, it's uh, Mick here. I'm a libertarian calling from Australia. Started listening to your podcast to get all the lefty ideas and and formulate my uh, my discussions and debates with my friends about uh, about what was wrong with them. I found, to my surprise, that I agree with about sixty uh, percent of of what of what your contributors say. And and um, I'm ringing about your episode on corporations and the thing about uh, corporations is. I think we agree that they're a massive problem, but we really differ on what the solution is. I'm strongly of the opinion that big corporations love big government, and the more that something's regulated, the harder it is to get true competition into into a particular market. And so I think one of the biggest ironies about people of the left is that they expect uh, government to fix the problems that they cause, and uh, I don't believe government is ever going to be able to do that. And so. Really, the solution is, in my opinion, to depower the government, get the government out of those things, and, and uh, allow the market to work properly. Secondly, on the issue of, of corporations, I don't believe corporations exist to make money. I think that's a popular thing that people of the left tend to say. But corporations exist to make stuff for you and me. Corporations can't just make money; they can't take money. They can only make a profit by doing something that we want. And so that people tend to blame corporations for things, but corporations are only supplying something that you want. And so to just point at them and say that they're flawed or bad is missing the point. They're, they're a tool to get you what you want and to get the populace what they want in total. It's only government that can, that can steal and can take. Only government can take. Corporations can only trade. Everyone else has to trade. There's a few exceptions. But you know what I'm saying. So, in in total, I think government is still going to be the problem, and I disagree with what what was said on on the episode where the, the government's the solution, and and that's certainly Obama's position that the government can be the solution. Whereas you can't expect the government to fix the problems that it's creating, and and I think that's one of the things that you get listening to your show is the frustration amongst the left. You've got a big lefty in charge of your country, and he's still not doing what you want and that's because you can't expect him to he's, he's always going to be a slave to those to those people who put him there so removing his power to, to, to really change things government shouldn't make that much difference anyway that's just my humble opinion and I'd love to discuss it with, uh, with whoever passes by I'll uh, have a good one cheers Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to act on yourself to be played on the show, there is a brand new number to dial, different from what I've said in the past, the brand new number 202-999-3991. So originally today, I thought I was going to talk about corporations and government and that sort of thing, but that feels boring now because the fact that an Australian libertarian of all people called in, left a message that, that got played on today's show means I have to tell a story that I've been dying to tell for weeks anyways. So I'm going to back way up, get a running start at this one, and we'll see how it goes. So several several shows ago, I told the story of the big company De Beers, the diamond company, and how they became an effective worldwide monopoly in the diamond trade and how they, they manipulated the market and they had such effective marketing that they vastly changed the way Western civilization feels about diamonds, how, how we feel compelled to buy them as engagement rings now in a way that it just wasn't the same before. And it's hard to imagine a world before the necessity of 
you know, a diamond engagement ring costing three months salary and so on. But that was all De Beers that did that. And I, I told the story to make the argument that what we as individuals think, the opinions we hold, are not necessarily ours in the truest sense of the word. You know, they don't necessarily come from within us. They very often come from either marketing or the established culture or heredity and tradition, you know, through our parents or through, you know, whatever, that we essentially have very few opinions that come truly from within us. And so I was trying to argue that we should question our own feelings about things and, and try to come to opinions that are more, you know, from deeply within us than from without. So now I'm going to, so just keep that in your mind. Now I'm going to read you a passage from a book and just imagine my surprise when, when I came across this. Now, of course, of course, the book I'm referring to is A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain, because what other book would come most in handy uh, for a story like this? What I'm going to read is, it's coming through the mouth of the main character of the book, the narrator of the book, but it's such an aside, it's so, it's so disconnected from the story, it's really just Mark Twain talking through his character. So this is what he has to say. Training. Training is everything. Training is all there is to a person. We speak of nature. It is folly. There is no such thing as nature. What we call by that misleading name is merely heredity and training. We have no thoughts of our own, no opinions of our own. They are transmitted to us, trained into us. All that is original in us, and therefore fairly creditable or discreditable to us, can be covered up and hidden by the point of a cambric needle. All the rest being atoms contributed by and inherited from a procession of ancestors that stretches back a billion years to the atom, clam or grasshopper or monkey from whom our race has been so tediously and ostentatiously and unprofitably developed. And as for me, all that I think about in this plotting, sad pilgrimage, this pathetic drift between the eternities, is to look out and humbly live a pure and high and blameless life and save that one microscopic atom in me that is truly me. The rest may land in Sheol and welcome for all I care. So there you go, a little dark perhaps, but it was certainly nice to have the old master Mark Twain uh, really just totally backing me up on, on that idea. And I do, I mean, there's no way to verify, but I do promise that I actually recorded that show, you know, a few weeks ago before I read this passage in the book rather than the other way around, which brings me back, of course, to libertarianism. Speaking of human nature, you know, the, the argument I make against human nature in the broadest sense is that it, although it claims to be in line with human nature, to just let people do what they want to do, and everyone's selfish, let everyone be selfish, and that'll work out better, is it, it, it pretends that humans are robots, that they, you know, always follow their own best interests, they always do what's best for them, they always, you know, do their research, and, you know, figure out what they should do, and so on, and no, none of it really ends up working out in the end. But what happened to me a few weeks ago is I went to a Super Bowl party, and for any Australian libertarians out there, the Super Bowl is really big and exciting in the United States because it's the biggest film festival that the ad agencies put on each year. And so everyone like gets together and throws parties to watch all the, uh, the fancy um, advertisements. So I went to the Super Bowl party and you know I met a bunch of you know friends of friends, people I'd never met before. And of all people, I ran into an Australian libertarian. And I got to tell you, it was one of the most interesting and pleasant uh, political conversations I've had in a long time. We talked for at least two hours straight. I don't know. I didn't 
watch a moment of any of the ads, uh, much less the game that was on. It was, I mean, it was really, it, it was interesting, <laughs> but the most interesting thing that was said was that he revealed not, he didn't just come right out and say it, but he revealed that he doesn't believe in inalienable human rights. And the way he did this was he said that, you know, not that he would ever agree that this is a good idea, but he said that in a society that the majority should always rule 50% plus one should rule and the minority effectively should be oppressed by the decisions of the majority. There should be no, you know, safety net for the mi minority to prevent them from being uh, oppressed by the majority. And, and he went as far as to say that he's like, look, I, w I abhor slavery, but if I was in a society in which 50% plus one of the s people in the society voted to institute slavery, then he would say, okay, well, that then yes, we should go along with it. Like, we're in a society. We voted. That means that there's slavery. And so whether he realized it or not, what he was saying is he doesn't believe in inalienable human rights. He believes that, you know, people's rights own, are, are derived from their peers, basically, you know, in society. Libertarians, they love their principles. So he went so far as to try to reinforce his idea of the of these principles as to say, look, if I was being judged and, you know, but 10 people or whatever, and six of them thought that I should be put to death, well, then I, I would go right along with it. I would be, you know, hey, we're in a society. The people have voted. They say I should be put to death. And he, he referenced uh, the death of Socrates. He's like, oh, I love that story. Man, death of Socrates. Man, I, if, if I was voted to be put to death, I'd drink that poison lickety-split. So again, like principles above people to the extent of, you know, his own life even. And so he, the idea of inalienable rights are so, <laughs> funny enough, alien to him that he would actually sacrifice his own life based on those principles. And so, and when I, I was hearing this, it like took me some, you know, some, some minutes to process. But once I did, I realized I was like, oh, wait, do you guys not have a bill of rights in Australia? Like, is that why you think this? Do you like, you don't realize that there should be protections for, for minorities. So I, I sort of like thought this for a little while, but then a few minutes ago, before I started uh, talking to you now, I actually looked it up. So I just, I went to Wikipedia, I found the Bill of Rights, not the American Bill of Rights, but just bills of rights in general, the idea that there's a list of the most important rights of the citizens of a country. And here's, here's what the second paragraph says on, uh, on Wikipedia. It says, Australia is the only Western democratic country with neither a constitutional nor legislative Bill of Rights, although there is ongoing debate in many Australian states. Former Australian Prime Minister John Howard has argued against a Bill of Rights for Australia as transferring power from elected politicians to unelected judges and bureaucrats. Victoria and the Australian Capital Territory are the only states and territories to have human rights bills. So, can you imagine that? I can't, uh, like, the, the, the fact that I live in Western society and have never in my life come across anyone who doesn't believe in the idea of human rights and that you shouldn't just be killed because other people vote for you to be killed or that you should be able to be enslaved if the other people in society vote for it. That's so alien to me, but 
it seemed like the most natural thing in the world to him. Not, of course, not that all Australians think this, but he came from a country, the only country in Western civilization without a, you know, a concrete bill of rights laying that out. So I've got to say, if that doesn't make you think twice about how you think about anything and how your ancestry and traditions and the culture and marketing around you have influenced your thinking on that, then uh, I don't know what to tell you. I think you really got to think twice. And it doesn't, doesn't mean that what you're thinking is wrong. It just means that everything is worth scrutinizing to make sure you really believe it and that it's not just being imposed on you from elsewhere or just come to terms with the fact that everything is being imposed from elsewhere and just live your life and be happy. I mean, that's, that's an option, I suppose. Anyways, that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, especially through my crazy rant there at the end. Thanks especially to those who support the show, either by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the program. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com Take you out in the open